Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. In late 2020, in light of uncertainty caused by the pandemic, Organic BC developed an alternative to its regular in-person annual conference. The conference was mostly online, and its centerpiece was a 40-episode podcast that it produced for conference ticket holders. Our intention was to eventually make these episodes available for free to the public, and what you're about to hear is one of those episodes. Our plan is to release them all on this podcast feed over the next few months. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy planning your next conference, which will, once again, take place in person. But it's also going to include a smaller slate of new podcast episodes to be released in January. I'll provide more info about all of that throughout the fall, but for now, I hope you enjoy this episode from the 2021 conference podcast. Oh, and by the way, we also incorporated the annual conference trade show into this podcast series, so we may or may not be taking a break in the middle of this episode for a short trip to that trade show. You'll know what I mean if you hear it. Okay, talk to you at the end, everybody. Hey everyone, it's Jordan, your podcast MC. This episode, I speak with Todd Kabaluk, a research biologist for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, about his research on the use of entomopathogens as a biological control for wireworms. I think that's all you need to know. I will talk to you a little bit in the middle and a little bit at the end. I hope you enjoy this. Hello, my name is Todd Kabaluk. I'm a research biologist for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And I carry out research in um, the biological control of insect pests of agricultural crops. Todd Kabaluk, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. Happy to be here, Jordan. I'm really uh, looking forward to talking to you, Todd. I I've asked you on uh, as part of our research roundup. So I think we should just start um, with a general question about your research. What, 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 what aspect of your research would you like to talk about today? Um, well, I do uh, biological, I do research in biological control of insect pests, but it uh, also kind of ventures out into other aspects of non-chemical control of insect pests. And right now, um, I am focused on biological control of, of the pest wireworms, which I think uh, has a lot of um, attention from organic farmers. And uh, I use... Um, uh, what are called endo or uh, entomopathogens, which are uh, pathogens of insects, um, to test uh, to use in controlling the wireworms. Okay, great. So I think where I want to start, Todd, is let's let's um, let's start really simply. Um, talk about a little bit about the wireworm and its role as a pest in in agriculture. Yeah, a, a wireworm is an insect larvae that lives in the soil. And it's a um, larvae, uh, which is um, a life stage of a, an adult stage called the click beetle. And you might see these click beetles around on the surface in the spring. Um, they're beetles about a little less than a centimeter long. And when they're on their back, they make a clicking noise and they click and they write themselves. So people might recognize the adult form of that. They make these larvae, and they're uh, small, uh, orangey, yellow larvae that live in the soil for you know quite a number of years, up to five years, and very persistent. 
um, very resilient to um, you know environmental extremes. It's really hard to kill them, and uh, they eat anything that's growing in the ground. And so, because of that, they pose a great threat to agricultural crops. If you're growing something like uh, uh, needs to retain its cosmetic appeal, like a turnip, like a beet, like a potato, uh, a wireworm will just uh, need to um, eat a few holes into that uh, that vegetable to make it unappealing or to cause entry points for rot, fungus, and it can ruin, ruin uh, cosmetically appealing crops quite easily, but it also will take out whole seedlings. Like if you seed a crop, um, they can just nibble on the, the, the early roots, the primary roots and kill the whole plants. And even if some plants get established and wireworms feed enough, they can reduce the vigor of that plant and reduce the yield. So farmers have a really uh, tough time managing these uh, in certain areas, the populations are so high, sometimes you can't get a crop to come out of the ground because the wireworms are just taking out the whole crop. And then um, in other cases, they're a persistent annoyance because they're always causing some loss to the crop that's that's uh, the farmer's trying to grow. And wireworms are fairly widespread well, certainly across Canada, the Northern Hemisphere, Europe, and um, and there's you know they've really increased in their population levels over the past two decades, primarily because of the dwindling uh, supply of really bad chemicals that we used to have, and uh, so their populations are are coming back, and they're particularly um, a problem for organic farmers because organic farmers almost have nothing to control this pest. They, you know, they have, certainly have no product to control the pest. There might be some agricultural practices that they can use to uh, maybe reduce the pest a little bit, reduce the wireworm populations. Um, but because of that, the, the organic sector takes a real hit at farm gate sales, but also the organic sector has difficulty expanding into new areas because often when you want to, uh, for example, convert a forage field or a pasture into crop, it'll be you know infested with wireworms and you can't expand the acreage because of wireworm infestations. So they're really problematic to the, the organic community. Okay, so Todd, it's so funny. I've been writing down my follow-up points, and you have, but you've. You've given me a very thorough answer that has actually partially answered a lot of them, but I, I do want to I want to go at it a little more completely. So, um, you mentioned it sounds like uh, it sounds like a, a major area of problems is is like you you mentioned a bunch of, of annual crops, and it sounds like the wireworm is mostly affecting the root portions of plants. Uh, does it expand beyond that? Is this a problem in, in, in perennials or is there is there some indirect way that it's a problem for livestock production or, or have you kind of covered the major areas of, of uh, the wireworms damage? Well, yeah, certainly annual crops, no question about that. Um, perennial crops, uh, like in, in forage areas, um, I'm sure they might be 
causing some loss to that, but nobody's really quantified it. Also, you know, in, in terms of forage crops, um, um, root feeding, insect root feeding, I mean, plants can largely compensate for that. And because the harvestable portion is the grass, you know, above ground, uh, you're not going to see that. Um, that problem you might have is uh, with wireworms with forage is when you're first seeding the forage, they might take out a certain percentage of the seedlings. But again, um, the seeding rate is so dense uh, that the plant might compensate and uh, just uh, recover uh, any yield that was lost from the loss of the seedlings. Okay, and you, you touched on uh, the battle against the wireworm in conventional agriculture. If I understood you, it, it conventional used to have more powerful pesticides at its disposal that have fallen out of use. It sounded like you were saying just as has happened because they have so many bad side effects. But in general, do conventional farmers still have more tools at their disposal to, to deal with the wireworm right now? Uh, conventional farmers have a, a, a number of uh, pesticides that they can use. Um, and, uh, the, you know, they are, they are using them and it is providing some relief. And, um, but we also are interested um, in introducing biological controls into conventional systems for a couple of reasons. Um, there's a lot of conscientious, environmental conscientious uh, conventional farmers who want better access to biological controls for their pests, integrated pest management um, uh, kind of dictates that you first go to a biological control before you go to a, a chemical control for uh, any pests. And um, also, you know, pesticides uh, get deregulated. Like our Health Canada system, Pest Management Regulatory Agency has a process by which they review every chemical every 15 years according to the new science that has arisen in those 15 years. And if um, they don't meet that standard of the new science, then they will become deregistered. And, and so we always need a suite of uh, control products available to the farmers so they're not left hanging without any pest controls whatsoever. So it's always good to keep a number of products in the mix that farmers can go to. Like I said, um, with organic farmers, they have no product. And so they're almost wholly vulnerable to wireworms. And um, it's important to always work towards products for organic farmers. So one, one other follow-up question I had is you made a point about how it can be particularly bad for farmers and organic farmers specifically who are expanding their production, uh, say turning over like, you know, what was a pasture, for example, um, because that's when populations can be really high uh, when you're first establishing, you know, that land for, for annual crop production. Um, so that that kind of squares with the only time I've dealt with wireworms is quite a few years ago when I did some growing on southern Vancouver Island and my I didn't know a lot about wireworms at the time but I understood that it was particularly bad when when you've just turned over new land that kind of implies that 
Um, if you take a bare earth approach to your farming and just keep the soil tilled constantly, that that's one way of reducing populations. But I mean, many, many listening will know there's, there's some serious trade-offs there because you're going to, you're going to create other problems with your long-term soil fertility and health. If you're not cover cropping and green manuring, etc. Um, but I do have, I did, I did, I did hear you right or understand you right that, that, um, if, if you were to just take an approach of constantly keeping your soil bare and tilling it, then, then that is one way that organic farmers have, have controlled or reduced populations over time. Uh, that's something I, I have mixed feelings about, um, about, uh, about advocating, but I mean, if you just look at the um, cause and effect of keeping land bare. Um, in principle, it, uh, it it should exhaust the wireworms in in that field, and maybe that could be a short term solution, and uh, with other practices for the longer term. Um, I'll just describe biologically what happens when you do that. So when you you don't have a long term grass cover. And you turn it over um, and you crop it. Well, there's, a, there's a lot of wireworms that have been cycling between the larvae and the adults and the adults lay the eggs and they make larvae go back into the soil. So they cycle around in that uh, permanent grass. And then when you um, till it, uh, you, you kind of break that cycle and, uh, and then you put in your crop. In general, um, the wireworm, there's so much organic matter in that soil that the wireworms won't necessarily locate the crop. And I'll just do a little sidebar here that uh, wireworms follow um, carbon dioxide plumes. And so uh, they locate a crop because that crop is generating carbon dioxide. You know, the roots um, respiring make carbon dioxide and that's how the wireworm finds the roots. And uh, when you first turn over the soil, there's a lot of competing carbon dioxide because of all the organic matter. And so they may not readily find the crop, but it's in the, the subsequent few years that, um, you know, the crop is largely the only game in town that's generating carbon dioxide. And so they're voracious in locating it. And, okay, let's go back to that um, point about keeping the land bare to reduce the populations. So if you just kept that land um, bare, what would happen is that those larvae would go through their life cycle. They would get bigger and bigger, pass through what we call different instars or growth stages of the larvae. And they eventually emerge as an adult. And those adults want to go find uh, suitable habitat to lay the eggs. And that suitable habitat will generally be outside of that um, area that's kept permanently soil. And so all the larvae over three to five years will eventually leave that area to go uh, lay eggs elsewhere. And, and I have seen this uh, in my own work. Um, I was testing a wireworm trap to detect their levels in the soil. And I had that great situation where I tilled the soil in year one and uh, kept it bare. Then year two, I put in my trap. I caught tons of wireworms in my trap. I uh, tested the trap following year, caught 
lots of fireworms, but fewer. And then the third year, barely any. And the fourth year, I could barely catch one wireworm. So uh, at first, I was a little puzzled, but then decided that this is what was going on in that field, is that um, they were eventually exhausted. Now, it's very difficult for a farmer, you know, to um, plan a plot of land that they can keep bare because, um, you know, they need to crop. And they need to have the land available to be able to do something like that. But again, um, it's it's you know keeping land bare leads to soil erosion, uh, reduction in fertility. Um, it's not the best practice. So I would suggest balancing that approach with uh, maybe smaller you know doing that with smaller areas. Um, do it in ways that you can manage the, you know, broader ecosystem health and soil health. Yeah, well, this is great. That was um, really helpful. I, the reason I pushed us kind of toward that tangent is because this is all leading up to, like, uh, I think there's some received wisdom that I didn't imply that a farmer would simply be keeping it bare. I was sort of getting at if they're only cropping and then tilling and leaving bare in between crops, I think there's some received wisdom out there that that's one way to reduce populations. And you've sort of described how that can happen. But I think many of us would agree. I think the science supports the notion that there are the trade-offs involved in terms of soil erosion, overall long-term health and fertility. There's some real trade-offs there. So this is all leading up to now. <laughs> I want to ask you about your research. Um, tell, me, tell me about the work you've done on, on trying to incorporate biopesticides. Um, into systems to try and deal with wireworms uh, a more, in, a, in a more effective way. Okay. Um, well, my central focus is working, as, uh, as I mentioned before, with uh, entomopathogen, uh, insect fungal pathogen. It's a disease of the wireworm, uh, and it's called metarhizium. And uh, interestingly, if you look back in history, um, there have been outbreaks of this disease in wireworm populations. And if you look at the scientific literature, uh, different scientists throughout uh, the 20th century have gotten all excited about, about the outbreak and isolated the disease and tried to use it for control and explored it to a certain degree. And, um, you know, wrote promising things about the potential for metarhizium to be used as a biological control for wireworms. And the same thing happened to me in the uh, early 2000s. There was an outbreak in the lower Fraser Valley that somebody alerted me to. And I went and collected these fuzzy wireworms. They were fuzzy because they're uh, growing fungus out of them. Uh, isolated it, identified it. And, you know, it was metarhizium and uh, I started playing with it in the lab, and I, like uh, the other scientists through the 20th century, thought, hmm, this has potential as a biological control, and uh, began exploring it. And I, I really, I have to say, I stuck with it. I stuck with it through the years, and um, I think longer, well, certainly longer than other people have, and I think that is paying off now. So I'm turning this um, fungal disease, um, leading it towards a commercial product. And I've, I've done enough field trials to show that it 
can successfully uh, control wireworms to a degree where the uh, marketable yield is increased. And that's not 100% of the time. Sometimes it just outright doesn't work. And um, But often enough, it does work. And I've had positive reports back from farmers who have tried it. And um, mostly they have good things to say about it. In my own field trials, um, I'm getting increases in marketable yields uh, between 20 and 60%. Uh, wireworm reduction has been as high as 80, or wireworm, the, the reduction in wireworm damage has been as high as uh, 85% in the crops. And so, <clears throat> just going back again, I've taken this disease and um, I formulated it in the lab using my own processes, and that's how I've been testing it. But now I've partnered with a company and uh, under the condition that they do the formulation because they want uh, to turn this into a formulation that they can put in a bag and sell to farmers. And so we're working together on, um, on, on that process. So they're making the formulation, I'm doing the testing. And that's where we are at, uh, at the current time. Okay, Todd. So, can we talk about? So, you've 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 partnered with um, a company to to for this kind of next stage, which is to to create a formulation that that can be can be sold and then effectively applied by farmers. What? How do you imagine? I'd like to know a little bit about your estimated timeline, and and also just how you what what is this product going to look like, and how how do you imagine it will be applied to fields? And I say it that way because it sounds like you don't. It's, that's part of the company's job is to, to develop the formulation. But what do you predict? Okay. Um, you know, I think I decided only very recently that I'm going to stop mentioning timelines because <laughs> they're, always, they're always violated. And uh, there's so many things we don't have control over uh, in, in meeting um, prospective timelines. However, where I'm at right now and how I see it unfolding with any new compound that you discover, um, we call it the active ingredient. It's the, the core compound that causes the effect on the pest. Um, it requires uh, a registration with Health Canada, the Pest Management Regulatory Agency. And uh, that's... That can be a long process, and that requires studying environmental toxicology, uh, efficacy, that data we mostly have, but many different studies to get the registration. Health Canada is very rigorous before they let anything uh, be sold to the public. So that will run, that registration process will run concurrently with the product development. And so in partnering with this company, um, I've uh, made it, or Ed Canada is making it a requirement that they, you know, proceed with registration while they develop the product. And um, the company has been uh, creating new formulations, um, you know, in collaboration with me, advising them on what type of product uh, would be suitable. And uh, they're very close to having, you know, the, the formulation that I anticipate would go to market. 
And, uh, and then once we have that, uh, we need to test that specific formulation and demonstrate its efficacy in the crop. And um, hopefully uh, by the time that's done, that'll coincide with the final steps of the registration process. And then uh, we'll have something for farmers. And do you imagine it, it is going to be like an inoculant that would be, you would coat your seeds with or, or like how, how do you physically, how will this be applied? Oh yeah. Um, it will be a granule and it will be a granule uh, that can be applied um, in a few different ways, uh, depending on the crop. Um, in potato, for example, uh, we're finding that if you, uh, apply the granule uh, in furrow at planting uh, that it can attract the wireworms and uh, infect them and kill them. So by the time the new potato tubers form, the wireworms have been sufficiently reduced that you get a, a reasonably, um, I wouldn't say damage free, but uh, um, a good yield of a uh, good marketable yield of those potatoes. So that would be banded in the furrow at planting uh, with uh, corn or with, uh, we've done a trial with turnips. Um, we have pre-plant applied it in bands. The idea being that wireworms are attracted to the, the product before planting and they're located where the product was placed in a band, they get infected and they die. And then you plant the crop and then you can uh, increase the marketable yield of the crop. And, and we have very good data on this uh, for Cherna. And uh, so banded applications uh, of a granule is uh, what I foresee uh, in terms of a use pattern. Excellent. Okay. Well, Todd, one, one of my last questions is whether in your research you've um, been able to determine whether with, with this treatment we might expect some collateral damage. I mean, that's always an important question in pest control is we're, we're targeting the wireworm. Are we going to need to be worried about the effect on other organisms of um, the, the mitorhizium or, or is this fairly targeted? Yeah, a couple of things on that. Um, First of all, in, in BC, in the lower mainland or south coastal BC, uh, the metarhizium that I have, uh, the strain that I'm working with is already in the soil. And, and we're basically concentrating it and applying it uh, to targeted areas. It's nothing different than what is already in the soil uh, naturally. Um, but then you go to uh, different ecological regions, um, East Coast of Canada, the prairies. Um, it, you know, you still have the metarhizium in the soil. It might be a different strain. And um, I guess there's things to consider there uh, in terms of non-target effects, what we call them, is what you're referring to. And I don't feel so concerned about it, but it's something that, absolutely requires testing. And uh, in the earlier years of this research, one uh, thing that I did was a lot of non-target testing. And 
what you would be concerned about mostly are the ground beetles. These are, you know, be, uh, beetles that are um, beneficial to uh, agriculture. They're, um, uh, they're predators of other insect pests and you wanna keep those healthy in your, in your agro ecosystem. And so I just collected different species of beetles and, and uh, tested this metarhizium against them. And um, a few got killed here and there, but if I was to conclude anything, I would say this is very easy on beneficials. Um, I don't have any concerns about it. And um, also you have to consider how metarhizium is applied. We're, we're not, spraying it all over the place or we're not widely distributing it it's going in into the soil into tight bands and so that limits the exposure of of um, ground beetles and even their larvae who wouldn't necessarily be so attracted to the granules so there are those considerations and this will come up again with the registration uh, health canada will be uh, asking me for non-target data and if it doesn't meet their expectations and requirements then they'll need to be more non-target testing uh, uh, to satisfy that requirement. Do you anticipate any trouble once you have a commercial product uh, getting it on the permitted substances list? Is oh that that's my goal. I, I'm, I'm interested in more natural ways to control pests or working with nature to control pests. And with that interest, you know, the first user group that comes to mind are organic farmers. And um, I have enough contact with enough organic farmers to know how dire the need is. Like I, I, I it's one thing to say that, you know, we're having a problem. It's another thing to hear that, you know, someone's livelihood um, is at risk because of this problem. And those stories uh, really, really keep me motivated to keep persistent on this research. Todd, it all sounds really fascinating and really promising. Uh, where can people learn more? if uh, if they if they're inclined to do so of course you know the internet is a, a great resource uh to learn about wireworms um and biocontrol people will have no problem finding an enormous amount of information um googling uh wireworms biocontrol metarhizium will lead them to subjects that i've discussed and probably lead them to a lot of my work. Um, they're free to uh, contact me, uh, drop me a line. I do uh, keep in contact with different farmers and I often get asked questions by different farmers. Um, one thing I will say, um, I, I'm I'm, I apologize, but I'm not able to provide farmers with this product because it's not a registered product and it needs to be registered or permitted before it's used uh, on farm and for food production. It's uh, for research purposes only at this time. 
Todd, uh, I really appreciate you making the time for everyone uh, listening. And so thank you very much. I look forward to hearing more about it in the future. My pleasure, Jordan. Thanks. Editor's note with children playing in the background. Todd sent me an additional clip that he wanted included after we got off the phone. It is a short clip featuring mainly one of his graduate students and a little bit of Todd. And it's just talking about another biological control option for wireworms on the horizon. So I'm going to let Todd and his graduate student take it away. There's another bioproduct for wireworm control worth mentioning. And um, that is still under research. And that research is being conducted by a graduate student who happens to be sitting right here beside me. And I'll just let him describe it. Hello, so my name is Aaron Tien, and I'm a graduate student at Simon Fraser University. I've been uh, working on Interafras for the past two years, and initially, this frass was sold by Intera as a fertilizer, and it was obtained from a small little fly called the black soldier fly. And as a co-product, the larvae of this fly actually poops out this fertilizer, which now uh, seems to also have some sort of wireworm protection to it. Um, they conducted a study where they applied this fertilizer to um, uh, some crops, and they realized that the crops that did not have this fertilizer uh, had a lot of wireworms in the surrounding areas. So they passed on this giant box of insect poop to me uh, to help further continue this research. And at first, I was a little bit uh, wary of this giant box of insect poop, but it ended up not turning out to be so bad. It actually smells like chocolate. But I took this chocolate-smelling box of poop um, to three different field sites. I took it to Vancouver Island, Interior BC, and uh, Prince Edward Island, where I applied it to a variety of vegetable crops. So we did it on turnips, uh, lettuce, and carrots. And we applied it into the ground uh, as a band uh, next to the crops, and we accompanied it with some sort of CO2 uh, generator. So we used rolled oats. And the rolled oats kind of attracts the wireworms into the area where it can then succumb to the fertilizer and help provide some sort of protection for the crops. And when we harvested the crops at the end of the year, we realized that there were a lot lower numbers of wireworm holes in the crops when the crops were treated with this fertilizer. So yes, this fertilizer can provide some sort of protection for the crops. It has a fertilizing effect and it has some sort of wireworm repellency and protection as well. Um, something to note is that when you do apply this fertilizer in uh, into the ground when you're planting seeded crops, it is recommended that you do water your crops a bit more than normal because this fertilizer can burn your crops due to its salinity. So yeah, it's quite an interesting story, Jordan. This uh, company, Intera, um, initially uh, marketed the frass as a fertilizer, you know, because poop has a lot of nitrogen in it, and it's called Intera Natural Fertilizer. But after 
um, Aaron discovered the wireworm control properties and, you know, he's getting good data on that. Um, they're now uh, calling that aspect of it as in terrafras, and it's my understanding that they're looking at commercializing it for wireworm control. And as an additional benefit, your potatoes are going to smell like chocolate. That's it for now. Special thanks for our podcast music goes out to Matt Eckel, a jazz flutist and father of organic rancher Aubin Banwell. You can search for Matt's music online. Eckel is spelled E-A-K-L-E. I also want to thank all of the guest interviewers you'll be hearing in this series as we re-release it over the next few months. Gavin Wright, Molly Thurston, Abra Bryn, Tristan Banwell, and Emma Holmes. Thanks to all of you for your contributions to the show. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you soon.